are listening to It Simply Isn't Done, a podcast of Portage Chapel Hill. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport, and I am typically joined by Reverend Barry Petrucci. Barry is on a renewal leave, and we are excited for him and excited to welcome him back mid-October. We are going to have guests join us on the podcast that will reflect on the scripture, on messages, and a little bit about their life and ministry. And we are so happy that you're here. It is week three of our Band Books series. This last week was Animal Farm, and the scripture was Romans 12. And our guest today is... Drew Baker. Hello. <laughs> hey, Drew. Hi. Um, so Drew is a congregant uh, here at Chapel Hill and a podcast listener, which that's one of the ways I figured out who should be a guest. <laughs> People who actually listen. Um, and Drew cares deeply about theology um, and kind of has a, a really interesting faith story. So I thought he'd be a great guest and I'm excited to hear a little more from him. Cool. And um, we'll have uh, the scripture and then the message. And then if you've already heard those, you can check the show notes and they'll say where you can skip to for our reflection. Join me in the scripture reading for this morning. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. A word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Join me in an attitude of prayer. Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts 
be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we are in week three of our Gospel According to Band Books series. We've covered And Tango Makes Three, Beloved, and today we're covering Animal Farm. Each week, we really use these books as a vehicle to bring forth a question, a central question for us as Christian people. So we've talked about faith and science. We've talked about stories of race and ethnicity expanding our understanding. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about economic systems. But let's turn back to Animal Farm for a moment. How many of us have read this work? Do you want to know why? Yeah, it's actually not banned in America. This is a book that is not banned in America. It is banned all throughout parts of Europe, or has been at times, and it has been banned in parts of Central and South America. Um, actually, it is so not banned in America, um, a portion, a part of the CIA actually acquired the rights to make the movie of the book, and they're the ones who created the animated story, the animated animal farm we've all seen. I don't know, I had to see that in class after we read it. The animated version is actually done by our CIA, and they edit it a little bit too. So it's fascinating. It is a really interesting topic to dive into, a book that is not necessarily banned here, but is banned in other places, particularly from the message. But before we get too far, I want to at least explain a little bit about what the book Animal Farm is. So it's a group of anthropomorphic farm animals, and they rebel against the, uh, their, their human farmer, who's kind of a bad guy, um, not great. And they're hoping to create a society where all animals can be equal and free and happy. It's a utopia. But ultimately, the rebellion is betrayed. And under the dictatorship of a particular pig named Napoleon, the farm ends up in a state much worse than before. And it's a direct satire of Stalin's rule in Russia. But it's sneaky that I picked this one, since this one isn't banned here. And it actually, that took me, learning a little bit about it, took me for the first time to the Journal for Strategic Security. <laughs> Probably won't visit there that often. But there's an interesting article called, All Propaganda Are Dangerous, But Some More Dangerous Than Others, colon, George Orwell and the Use of Literature as Propaganda. It's this really interesting story. Orwell publishes Animal Farm and 1984 and 1944 and 45, respectively. He had a really hard time finding publishers. He was in Britain, right? He's British. And at the time, all the publishers in Britain didn't really want to take it because they're allies with Russia. They had just fought the Nazis. They didn't really want to have this really kind of direct satire. So eventually, it was tenuous. He found a publisher. And he has gone on record stating that he meant both works, 1984 and Animal Farm, to be specific satirical criticism of Stalin and Stalin's totalitarianism. We can see, however, that it was, um, ended up being used as kind of wholly anti-communist literature, right? That's kind of the camp that it's been in. That's usually the way that we're taught about it. That ended up kind of being fickle, and this article kind of um, 
outlines why. Uh, Orwell did not write these in concert with any government. He wrote them on his own, and they ended up kind of having a life of their own. So interestingly, 1984 actually gets used in Russia and other places as anti-U.S. propaganda. <laughs> and that's where we have the first introduction of the term Big Brother. Right? So that we really get that from 1984, this understanding of Big Brother. So it's interesting that Orwell's work will be used at one hand as kind of pro-American, and on the other hand, anti-American propaganda. It's a really interesting work in literature in that regard. It makes us consider what purpose is literature supposed to serve? Should it be in these kind of propaganda spaces? Um, Orwell had a lot of interesting things to say about the way his art was used, but he mostly just wanted to confirm um, the thing he was most scared of was this authoritarianism and totalitarianism that we can find really in any system of government. And that's ultimately what he was critiquing through a specific lens. And as we consider his work as 21st century Christians in America, um, the question that comes to my mind is, does scripture, does who we know Jesus to be, have a preferred economic system? Like, what can we glean from our faith in terms of how we organize and distribute wealth? And I think this question is really hard, not the least of which because structures like communism, socialism, democratic capitalism, they were not around when Jesus was around. So he could never have been directly speaking to any of them. And yet they often get used and bandied about, like Jesus' quotes will get used and bandied about in, in, guard, in regards to a specific form of government. So I don't really feel um, comfortable applying that anachronism to Jesus' words. I don't really think that's fair. And I don't feel comfortable or confident stating that Jesus had uh, anything other than a clear stake in how we treat people and uh, with whom we give our allegiance, right? What is the most important commandment? To love God and to love neighbor. I have witnessed arguments between folks about how Jesus was a socialist, quoting all kinds of his works. Um, and I've heard others saying Jesus was a capitalist because he says the poor will always be with you. I tend to think both of those are unhelpful. And I'm frankly more concerned with thinking that Jesus can be used as a political partisan talking point. That makes me deeply uncomfortable. I don't think that's the purpose Jesus was here to serve. And I think we make our political ideologies an idol when we do that. Um, so I don't love that. Just naming that here. We do know that Jesus said, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know, pay the tax man. We have an, it's an implicit acknowledgement that there is some sort of rule of order that we have. And we know that when people are being treated unfairly and unjustly, specifically regarding economics, Jesus flipped tables, right? So he has, it's not as if he doesn't have any sort of thought about what is just or fair. Just perhaps the specifics aren't as important to him as how we treat people relationally. The concern that Animal Farm brings up for me is that often, very often, with American Christians um, and dominant Christian culture, we conflate our religious fervor with patriotism and nationalism. And that creates this inability to have any critique of anything done in America, because then, of course, you're anti-American. Friends, often we make our nationality an idol, and we have to be thoughtful about that. We make our economic system an idol, and we are unable to clearly see. Right? We think it must be wholly good or wholly bad, forgetting that everything is likely both, 
and also neutral. We really love to put things in binaries and we get in the camp and we stay there where you either hate capitalism or you love it and think it's the best thing in the universe. Capitalism has brought a lot of good things into the world as expressed through the US. The medical technology, I mean, millions of lives have been saved. And we can see just technology generally. There has been, the competition has pr produced a lot of incredible technology. And we also know that the relentless pursuit of capital means we have an absurd and immoral distribution of resources based on labor. Labor that was stolen initially, that we have not made up for. And now we're having situations where the CEOs of the big three are making in a year what one employee would make in 400 years. And that's unjust, we understand that. And we've been seen and been shown and fed, right, the harm that all sorts of economic systems and governmental structures have done. Right? And we've seen the good in them as well, because at the end of the day, friends, they're all run by people. People, just like us, who are often all at once good, bad, and indifferent. I wish people took Orwell more at his word, and I wish um, we understood that it was mostly uh, hoping to be anti-authoritarian. And friends, we're learning that that can happen in any kind of governmental system that's on the rise in all sorts of governments across our entire world. We're seeing bends toward dictatorship all over. Historians and sociologists ourselves in structures. Jesus, time and time again, shows he has preference for how we treat people. How we treat people. Jesus' ministry and all of the epistles to follow the early church, they center around right relationship with God and each other. In our scripture today, Paul is writing right, to the Romans, but really to anyone. This is his largest and most comprehensive work. He really covers it all. And so much of it is about how we are to treat one another. Let's pull up at least the first part. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Look at this. Be patient in affliction. That's hard, y'all. <laughs> Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. Who, oh, sorry, can we go back to that one? There's one thing I wanted to address. Who are we called to serve? The Lord. The Lord. Serve the Lord, right? There's a pretty clear mandate of what that might look like. This entire scripture is based on how we treat one another. <laughs> Being in right relationship with God and one another. Friends, oftentimes I feel like we rely on or use capitalism or our fragile democracy as an excuse to treat people poorly. Instead of seeing people and figuring out a system wherein we all can thrive. Because we've all heard someone say, or perhaps we've been the one to say it, um, some un unhoused person, we see them on the street and we say, they should, get, they should get a job. They should participate more fully. They failed at capitalism. It's their fault. That must be what's happening. They need to get a job. And that kind of statement lacks both compassion, but also a critical understanding of how poverty works in our country. Right? Should the richest nation in the world have homeless people? Should we have homeless kids? 
Does that compute with how we understand taking care of one another? Right? Instead of considering how we redistribute or distribute the immense resources we have, we blame the individuals involved. And we side with institutions over people. And Jesus does speak to that, whatever the institution may be. Right relationship with God and neighbor is the fundamental expression of our faith. And friends, it can exist no matter where you're at in any economic or governmental system. We talk a lot, I talk a lot, about being a progressive, a progressive Methodist, a progressive Wesleyan, and I often say folks mistake the term for kind of the partisan political understanding of progressive. And um, it's not that, it's, a, it's an understanding of our faith. So a key feature that distinguishes theologically progressive folks and our expression of faith is that we find right practice to be key as opposed to right belief. There are churches all throughout America, all in our community right now, holding services, and they really emphasize right belief as the main feature of faith expression, meaning there is one right belief then um, that's called orthodoxy, right? There's a right belief and there's an authority. The authority holds the belief and then teaches it and then everyone assimilates to that belief and that's how you express your faith. And I found in those spaces, spaces of Christian thought, there's much less diversity of thoughts or opinion because in order to be part of the community, a marker of being in the community is expressing a particular belief. It is no surprise then in many of those spaces, faith and nationalism kind of get jumbled into one thing that cannot be separated. And I think that's important when we talk about book banning. Um, what we're really talking about are these challenges to content. We, we're not really banning books in the classical way we think about it in America, but there are people and organizations um, bringing challenges to content. A local librarian here in town shared this with me. It's that they're seeking content, they want to get out of the public libraries and out of the school system. And almost none of these challenges make it to the banned stage. They go under a really intensive review process. But the calls to challenge have increased, prompting uh, librarians to realize that people really don't know the role of public libraries, or in some cases, our education system. The calls to challenge content are often based on gender, sexuality, and race. Many of the groups coordinating this effort are explicitly or implicitly Christian. And within these challenges, themes appear. There is one correct way to be taught. There is one correct kind of content to read. And it should not include anything that goes against our right belief, not just for my own family, but for everyone. Everyone needs to assimilate to what I understand right belief to be. And we see this kind of weird binary being promoted that either you're American, right, or you're in any way progressive. And I want to give an example. We had a neighbor call us and kind of ream out Lisa Derzik on the phone, not someone who goes to this church, but after the attack of our sign. She was very disturbed that she felt that we chose the pride flag over the American flag, as if they are somehow opposed to one another. <laughs> as if you must choose one. We can't live in a world where both can exist. 
She was really disturbed by this. Um, and honestly, it's incorrect, because when it's appropriate, we do have the American flag motif on the sign. When there's holidays, particularly election days, we actually have it on there, but that's aside from the point. We also have a brand new commercial size flagpole with a giant American flag on it, in case you forget what country you're in, right? We're here. We have it. We understand. <laughs> They're not diametrically opposed to one another. But here's the thing. This, is, this, is, this one call is emblematic of patterns we're seeing and hearing all over the place. Like, what does that say? That either you're American or you're queer? No, that's not okay. That is not okay, right? She also asked if we're teaching kids in the preschool critical race theory. <laughs> you know, and it's like, I, I get it's a bit of a trope, but either it's either you're American or you have meaningful conversations about race? No. Right? That is a false dichotomy we're being presented with. Either we're a real church, or a Bible-believing church, right? or we're a church like us. That's, a, that's the option being presented to us. You're a Christian or a heathen. And I don't know. Places where a real church in America gets conflated on one side and something else on the other, that, that to me, frankly, feels un-American. And I have a lot of concerns about how loud and about how violent these conversations are getting. What we end up hearing is that there is one right belief from dominant Christian culture, and that's really leading us into places where they're trying to code American with being white, hetero, Christian. That's not what it's about. That's incredibly concerning, right? And in progressive Christian thought, right practice, orthopraxy, is demonstrated and emphasized over right belief. We don't all have to agree. I can tell you from my email inbox, we don't all agree, <laughs> right? And that's okay. We don't all have to agree to, be, to love God and be here and serve God together. That is not a necessity in progressive Christian thought. We do have a particular way we feel that we're called to treat people, and it's because of scriptures like this and the demonstration of Jesus, who we know God to be. Our understanding of scripture has led us here. We are loved into loving others. And this is not an attempted slam dunk on other Christians. Um, I, I really just want to kind of explain why we have people that we love in our lives and we just can't understand. We can't understand how they come to the conclusions they come to. They might go to a space or a church that kind of has that focus on right belief, and that is important. They're not really allowed to deviate from that. But we're also not exempt from this. We can fall short of this too, and we can kind of get confused in all of this. This is hard because our identity, it isn't neatly compartmentalized inside of us. And sometimes pieces get woven together that might need some disentangling. We should do some sorting and some searching. Do you all remember when Marie, Marie Kondo was big? Does any of you remember that? It was this interesting organization method that really helps you clear out a lot of your stuff. And it was like you go in your closet and you look at something and you decide if it gives you joy. And if it doesn't, you bless it and you say thank you for your service and you get rid of it. Friends, sometimes our internalized belief need that same method. We need to spend a little time and some critical thought saying, hey, this served me at a time and it might not any longer. We might need to do some work organizing and disentangling what we have going on inside. 
As Christians, we have a value system. We have a value system. And we operate in a world that also has a value system, and sometimes those values are at odds, but not always. I firmly believe, you know, we're, we're called to be where we're at. Bloom where you're planted. We live in this country that has incredible freedom of thought, and in some places those are being challenged. We live in a country that has an incredible abundance of wealth, and I think we could work on redistributing it a little bit better. And I think together we can find out ways to do that because of who we are and our faith, instead of imposing our beliefs on other people such that they assimilate. This week I want us to think about and consider our understanding and our relationship to our economic system and where we can stretch and focus on our right relationship with God and with neighbor. Amen. All right, welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for uh, hanging in there all. So the way we start off is uh, usually um, I say what I want. I wanted folks to get from it, and then you can share what you actually. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> so this this was interesting, um, and I didn't mean to do like a bait and switch, but I feel like I kind of did mm. in terms of uh, talking through economic systems. I find that we often get really in our heads and we get really into political philosophy as opposed to what I think Christ more directly calls us to, which is how we actually are in relationship with one another. Okay. So that's really generally where I went. There's a lot of um, generational differences in how we view uh, economic and political systems, and I find them kind of butting heads a lot. Um, and I have my own personal views on that, but in terms of what I think the congregation uh, could hear or needed to hear was that um, we all find ourselves right where we are, and wherever we are, we're called to contribute to systems to care for one another meaningfully and to love God. Okay. So that was my hope. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think that came through well, um, especially with the Romans passage you picked. When it was all said and done, I um, beforehand I went back and I read Animal Farm just for kicks, so yeah. I was up on <laughs> where we were going there. But well, I didn't look at the scripture, so um, whether whether I had seen that up front or not, I don't recall. Um, but I, you know, was half expecting you to go somewhere in the direction of you know, um, true true religion is to care for orphans and widows and. Yeah. You know, kind of that more directly speaking to um, an economic system or um, what our priorities in our economic system maybe should be. Yeah. Um, that carries, you know, throughout the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, yes. you know, that Jesus was about that, um, you know, when he comes into the scene in Luke and talks about... Um, you know, taking care of the oppressed and uh, proclaiming freedom and liberty and all that. So I was, I was half expecting you to go there, but then when the passage was right out of Romans, it started clicking uh, what direction <laughs> you were going. So that was, that was interesting. That was kind of, uh, um, like I say, not expected, but I think it made sense. Yeah, I, I have found, I have been surprised by myself 
with what I would have expected me to preach on <laughs> based on the book. <laughs> and then where, you know, where we tied scriptures and then where I feel, um, yeah, the direction, you know, through prayer and preparation, the spirit kind of moves me to speak, I mm-hmm. suppose. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah. And it, there were so many... There's a lot, right? I, I tend to put like three sermons in one. Um, and then I kind of joke too that I, I crash land them. Like I say my final thought and then I just say amen. And I'm like, I'm, there's no, yeah. I'm not going to summarize anything. <laughs> so I don't know that that's always the best technique, but I just I just don't have any more mm-hmm. really to say. Um, so it, yeah, there was a lot woven in there in a myriad yeah. of ways. Yeah. But I, I don't know if I would do the same again, but I, I'm hopeful to kind of keep introducing themes yeah um yeah like i find a lot of pushback um or some light pushback particularly from some of our elders who aren't used to the term progressive christianity okay yeah and so and a lot of people aren't a lot of people Mm -hmm. have assumptions about what it is and it is actually like a theological stream that has been around for a really long time sure we just put names to it now Mm -hmm. so i think anytime um I can weave in some teaching about that is always helpful for our congregation to understand ourselves, but also to better understand others and kind of where they're yeah. coming from. Yeah, sure. Um, which I'm excited to hear more from you later mm-hmm. because you have been, you've had feet in both spaces. <laughs> yeah. um, so you can probably speak to that yeah. also. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of, in in my sphere, there are a lot of Christian leftists who have mm-hmm. a particular idea about how we should organize ourselves. Sure. Um, I have so I have a lot of friends um, and acquaintances and people I know that that you know would prefer to be a democratic socialists. Sure. And are very passionate about that. Um, so I, I think that's likely what folks would have assumed. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That sure. I would have I would have some sort of stake in that. Mm-hmm. That's just not really where I found um, the Christ or the text leading us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. nor super appropriate for me to preach from the pulpit personally. But yeah. Yeah. And I guess to what you were saying there, um, <laughs> I think I'm starting, uh, I'm vibing with you on this stuff because uh, before I, I've, I brought my notes along just because, you know, in case it brought any my, you know, memories back to um, listening yesterday as you were teaching. And um I think before you even got to the part about orthopraxy and orthodoxy, I had written in my notes, is this an orthopraxy versus orthodoxy sort of thing? Yeah. And, you know, minutes later, there we are talking about it. Um, And I, thinking about it a little bit more today, I really am, I I think I'm following the thought that a, a lot of the difference between a conservative and a progressive take on Christianity does have to do with that whether we emphasize orthodoxy or orthopraxy yeah and it's definitely one of those things like I've been picking up on and realizing more about myself and things um over time but it was it was just kind of fun that it all that that's where we came back to and yeah kind of sense that we were getting there even before we got there <laughs> yeah that you know and we were kind of having that conversation a little bit before in chapel chat too like we were kind of mm-hmm. getting to that space as well so it's interesting I think when you know I don't I'm trying to think of a better word than congeals because that's kind of a gross word <laughs> 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 but 
when the spirit kind of like is leading folks in conversation to a particular place. Sure. And like obviously that's uh, orthopraxy and progressive Christianity, specifically progressive Wesleyanism. Mm-hmm. Like that's my, um, that's where I fit. That's where I fit in the Christian umbrella. Like I mm-hmm. feel really comfortable in that space. Um, and it's not to take away from any other particular space, but to just kind of name those realities, mm-hmm. I think are important. Um, yeah, as we move forward, especially as I have conversations with so many folks who are really struggling to understand where their parents, where their siblings, you know, where people that they have these deep relationships are coming from because they have this huge divide and a lot of it starts uh, with where they go to church, right? Sure. Which is, I have found really interesting. That has become more divisive really through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot probably started in 2016. Yeah. And all around who who we were voting for and things and then progressed more and came out even more clearly during the pandemic and things as everything just progressively seems to be more and more polarized and things yeah and we're and we're trying to figure out how to how to deal with that and i'm not sure uh as a society we're doing great In terms of finding common ground and like, <laughs> yeah, even even things we would have thought were givens, like, um, you know, what does cause societal harm and what doesn't? We're having a hard sure. time even considering that. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was this was interesting for me um, as someone who deeply cares and like I love American history. That's what I was trained in. That's what I I taught only for one year, but like, <laughs> you know, I have a lot of training in that space, and so to choose a book that was used very intentionally for American propaganda, I think is, was, I don't know, just a fascinating in retrospect like that. I don't know what I exactly what I was thinking, but I was happy that I went with it. Um, and thankfully Barry affirmed it too. Yeah. We got to, you know, this, this whole series was his idea and um, he's like, well, it's, you know, you get to do it, but let's, I, I wanted to talk through it with him before he left. So yeah. that was fun too, to have that affirmation, um, but you reread it. And I'm curious if you took other, other lessons from the actual book itself so the thing that stood out to me a lot in the book i was actually i'm curious what your take will be on this or what your input will be um because you did hit on it a bit in the message itself was you know if you look at and you know spoiler alert here um (laughs) so the the animals take over the farm they install this effectively you know stalinist type of economic system And by the end of the book, though, we've come full circle. You know, the pigs are in the farmhouse with the men again. And I think the final lines of the book are something about, you know, the you couldn't tell you all of a sudden couldn't tell the difference between the pigs and the men. Yeah. Um, And I don't know if that means the men looked like pigs or the pigs were looking (laughs) like the men or, you know, what what exactly uh, Orwell was trying to say there. Yeah. But so there was at the end of the book, there wasn't a conclusion to like this economic system is better than the other or something like that. Um, you know, it seemed pretty, um, agnostic when it was all said and done, you know, the, um, what may be the more, um, capitalist, you know, man system wasn't ever looked at highly. Um, and on the other side, the more communist Stalinist system ultimately failed. Yeah. So it was like we weren't presented with the solution. We were just saw the problems, and um, you know, like have come to the point of okay, you know, 
is all, in, in a sense, is all that we have to go on relationships and things. Do we, do we get to a point where we can ever advocate a system well? Because it seems like the, the pessimistic side of me says, you know, humans are involved. Mm-hmm. It's going to get screwed up. We're going to do crummy things to each other. And for the merits of any given system, we can find its downfalls. Yeah. You know, um, capitalism suffers from um, greedy impulses for as much as it can do to lift people up out yep. of certain systems. Um, communism, socialism, they struggles from other um, downsides as well. And um, it... So I guess what I was curious of is where is there anywhere in your mind in economic systems where we can take hope, mm. where we're not stuck with quite the pessimistic view that um, it's all gonna it's, fail. No it's all what. a human yeah. system and it's all gonna <laughs> fail. So why try? You know? Yeah, I have felt that same kind of existential. Angst, and it's interesting because sometimes, um, I, you know, and to name this, our generation, you and I are from the same generation. Our generation was fed different propaganda, sure. and some of us more than others. Like, you know, I don't know, um, your your spouse was homeschooled, so I don't know to the, but yeah. like yeah, yeah. generally, right? There's, mm-hmm. um, so whereas my folks, my parents were really fed intense anti-communist propaganda. Yeah. Very yeah, much sure. so. I didn't get that sense as much. We had a very anti-terrorism, which was coded for anti-brown people. Sure. <laughs> That's really the propaganda we were consistently fed, mm-hmm. um, not just about folks who were um, Arabic and Muslim, but also about immigrants, particularly okay. a specific kind of immigrant like that. So mm-hmm. we had a different kind of vibe of propaganda Um, so we have different kind of thoughts on economic systems. So I've had these conversations with particularly baby boomers and some Gen Xers who are really confused about a critique of capitalism, Mm -hmm. um, specifically because they're like, well, look what was happening in other spaces or, you know, look what was happening X, Y, or Z Mm -hmm. instead of like, well, this is all I know. So I'm going to critique what I know. I can't really speak, Mm -hmm. you know, to what I don't know or what I don't understand. And particularly in, in spaces that have entirely different systems, um, that we don't even know to the extent the U.S. was propping up or not, particularly sure. what was happening in Central and South America. Yeah. So I, I think it's interesting because I spent a lot of time doing that sort of critique. Mm-hmm. But finding spaces to draw hope, like I think absolutely, and I, I do think a lot of it, we have to come down to a more micro level mm-hmm. of understanding what community and care actually look like. Because like you mentioned, um, we're all humans. All the systems have humans. Right. And humans are going to do what humans do. Humans going to human. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and many of us will behave from a scarcity mindset. And I think um, there are billionaires in any sort of economic system, which just kind of points to me to an ultimate moral failing mm-hmm. in terms of distribution of resources mm-hmm. and how we care for one another. Because at the same point, there are billionaires, you know, there are kids that don't have enough food. Sure. So 
I think what I take hope in is um, particularly, you know, Jesus saying like, yeah, you're going to be in an economic system. Yes, pay your taxes. Mm -hmm. But also get upset about the spaces where they are unjust. Mm -hmm. And you're allowed to call that out and you're allowed to name that and you're allowed to make it better. Um, I think that's where I find kind of the small small bits of hope is understanding our participation. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's we're so small, right? We're just these individual people participating in what we feel are these cogs of systems that we can't control. And we can't, we'd love to control them and we absolutely (laughs) cannot, but we, we do have individual impacts in terms of our collective response to things we can do. Mm -hmm. So I think preparing ourselves to be ready for what that kind of hospitality and what that kind of sacrifice looks like. I take hope in prepping to do that. Um, you know, here we just started having conversations about what broader congregational care could look like. Mm-hmm. And we're interested in, in introducing the concept of mutual aid, which that's a new concept to a lot of Christian spaces. Christian spaces often focus on charity, mm-hmm. which is what can I give to others? Okay. Particularly, um, you know, middle class white spaces, that's where we feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. We never feel comfortable receiving. We really feel sure. uncomfortable being on the sure. end of a need because, oh, especially, you know, middle class Midwestern white people hate <laughs> to have needs. <laughs> Having needs is like the worst thing in the universe, right. even though we're humans created with needs. So even having conversations with um, some of our elders who had been doing congregational care and introducing the concept of mutual aid, hmm. meaning give what you can, but you also have to name that you have needs and you have to be willing to receive to participate. Yeah. And how can we start creating spaces where we can name our own needs and free other people to name needs? And I think that's hmm. one way to subvert a lot of the harms of our economic system is to being able to name your own need. So like that's even step one. I take hope that there are people who are willing to kind of start with that and really um, get into spaces that are uncomfortable in order to have to name that. Neat. That's a long answer. (laughs) I like it. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. Um. Um, a rabbit hole I didn't go down, but that would be fascinating, is more of Orwell writing about Orwell's writing, right? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. He writes a lot about his own writing and how hmm. it's interpreted. Yeah, you alluded to that a bit. And I was thinking and considering, and I'm not sure if you've thought about this, um, about when you create art and you put it into the world, mm-hmm. it has a life of its own. Yeah. And that is wild to me. Huh. It's scary. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you know, I I don't know if you're if you're up on music, um, or if you follow, you know, I don't know, I don't know what it means to be up on music, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking particularly the song "Richmond North of Richmond." Um, it, it was a popular country song, and it kind of has has uh, an allusion to some stuff going on with Jeffrey Epstein in it. Okay, and so like uh, particularly QAnon-y folks and like very alt right Republicans have kind of claimed it. Okay. And then the person who wrote the song, he had to say like, hey, no, like I'm writing about everyone in government, including those folks. But like people have a right to interpret this however they want. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see that with Orwell as well. Like having your work be used by multiple different governments as a form of propaganda. Uh Uh-huh. That's, that's bananas. Oh, for sure. And I, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) I, I guess I just hadn't considered what that must feel like as an individual or Hmm. to know that. (laughs) Yeah, I um 
so I'm not super familiar with that example, um, but I, I do listen to several. I'm I'm just a podcast junkie. I mean, yeah. So I, I listen to um, podcasts by um, several different musicians that I enjoy, and um, it is interesting. Sometimes they get into that whole like, you know, some of them don't even like to like discuss their lyrics and things like that because they just want they want their art to go out there and to be interpreted by the listener however the listener takes it yeah you know some of them like to tell the story behind the song and you know this is what I was thinking this is what um I'm trying to do but yeah as as an artist that's got to just be a wild um a wild paradigm to have to deal with and to hear in real time right now, bringing it back to banned books, mm-hmm. authors talking about their own works being banned. Yeah. Right? It's, you know, that that has been fascinating. I mean, Toni Morrison uh, spoke and wrote a lot mm-hmm. about her works being banned because they're so frequently banned. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's really interesting hearing these artists create create art for the world and then kind of have to sort of defend it. In a way, you know, that I'm not sure we're always used to understanding. Like, we don't have a very art-literate culture. Yeah. And you can see that with the banned books phenomenon generally. And, Mm -hmm. of course, you know, we're not talking about actual banned books so much as challenges to banning books. Um, So I'm curious, just given your background, too, that we know that a lot of these organized um, efforts to ban books are coming from explicitly Christian spaces. Not entirely, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but a lot of them are. What was it like uh, being in some of those spaces and thinking through the messages on censorship? I I don't know to what extent censorship was as, as big of a thing. I feel like that, yeah, something I wasn't quite as aware of at, the, at that time. Um, and so, you know, you've, you've talked with Robin and I together. Robin's my wife, my spouse. Um, so her experience was definitely, I think, she probably experienced more of that than I did. Um, as far as my background goes, um, I actually grew up overseas until I was seven. Um, my parents were missionaries. So I was exposed to other cultures from a young age, yeah. which always for then growing up in pretty, you know, conservative U.S. evangelical Christian spaces, um, it kind of gave me a little bit of a different perspective. Yes. So yeah. it was like I always had this kind of slightly outsider perspective for, for being generally accepted in the community and stuff. There... I, I feel like I always had a little bit more of um, maybe a, a, a willingness to, to question or to think a little bit differently on things. Although, you know, w- within a certain set of bounds, I think at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so. <sighs> yeah. Where did yeah. you grow up? Um, so I grew up in, till we were seven, my parents were missionaries in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were in Caracas, the capital, which is very, you know, don't think Amazon rainforest, jungle stuff. It's, you know, Chicago. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a big city crammed into a valley. 
uh, very much, you know, high rise skyscraper, that sort of, um, but my dad had been a missionary in, um, the Dominican Republic before that. Um, so he had done both the very rural and the very urban side of things. Um, and I guess, uh, Full story um, is, you know, my faith has been very much shaped by my parents and my dad in particular. So I've always had his, um, you know, kind of his voice ringing in the back of my head and his broader experience. So he he always has had kind of interesting takes on um, just the way the U.S. has handled itself internationally since, you know, the late 70s early 80s on on through and so it has always led to um just probably a little bit broader than the average conservative yeah. christian uh perspective for me sure <laughs> which i i attribute to you know where i am now in terms of being in intentionally being in a more progressive space um where i feel like those perspectives or those thoughts are more broadly accepted or, um, well, and, and I guess where I feel like I can be pushed to think even broader yet, you know, that I think that's probably the, one of the really big attractions about being here in this body is, um, the, the wide range of thoughts on all sorts of topics really. You know, I've I've appreciated that here as well. I think sometimes um, we often will think it when we're at church worshiping with folks, it is in in some ways a monolith. Mm-hmm. And I doubt any churches at any given time, right? Although we some mm-hmm. churches you have to say the right things mm-hmm. in order to you know to be there. Um, but I've been really like I you know pleasantly and delightfully surprised by the diversity of thought of folks here and their willingness. Mm-hmm. Um, to listen and consider things yeah. that are different yeah. or new. Um, your family uh, found Chapel Hill during during the pandemic. Uh, it was it was coming out of the pandemic. Yeah, so I guess whatever we, that is. <laughs> well, yeah. So we started looking for a new church to be a part of. Would have been January of twenty two, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So we visited several other, you know, more progressive churches around town and things and ultimately ended up settling here. I think it was probably August of last year. Yeah. Roughly. July, August. So we've we've been here consistently for a bit over a year now. I'm curious if you would share cuz you you all are representative um, of a lot of folks. We mm-hmm. found we we've had a lot of growth here at Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, from folks that have a, a similar, not exact story mm-hmm. to you and Robin and your fam, if you would talk a little bit about what, you know, you kind of had a um, a reckoning, a coming together, right, <laughs> of, <laughs> of what led to kind of seeking a different a different space for you all. Yeah. Um, well, I think I'm, I'm, I've hit on a lot of it is just um, feeling that as a as a family um our our beliefs our understandings on things um just of ourselves of our faith um we're changing um 
the way we were seeing, the way we were understanding wasn't lining up so well with um, where we were at. And I, you know, I make it a point not to be disparaging. Of course. Because, yeah. you know, we, we really do, um, you know, we love the people we were with. That was home. That was family for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, you know, our, the way we were understanding our faith was getting to the point where it was enough different that we didn't feel like we could any longer just, you know, give the answers to questions that were generally accepted in the community. Yeah. Um, and I think we had become aware that more progressive Christian spaces, um, even if we weren't fully aligned in the thinking, mm-hmm. there was just that openness to the perspectives where it wasn't quite so much a, um, it comes back to that orthodoxy, orthopraxy talk. Um, Just, you know, that wasn't so much about having the right answers to everything, but the being willing to um, journey together and to ask questions and maybe or maybe not come to the same answers, but there's an openness to different lines of thought and different lines of thinking that we were looking for and that we've really, we've really felt, um, you know, we've enjoyed, um, I say we, Robin and I have really enjoyed talking with you one-on-one talking with pastor Barry one-on-one at different Mm -hmm. points where we've got to get into a little bit more nitty gritty on things and just really feel that, you know, we might align on a lot of things or other things that we might not, but just the um, openness to continue the conversation is, is really, it's refreshing and we enjoy that. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that. I, I feel really called to help create spaces where people can learn what it means to actually disagree and keep engaging, right. Mm-hmm. Or, or realize the spaces where we have so much, in common and there's like a thing that might you know not be exactly alike yeah and that you know that's a hallmark of progression progressive christian spaces for sure um but i think could be a hallmark of more of how we live our lives mm-hmm. to stay mm-hmm. engaged in conversation not just avoid the conversation <laughs> yeah and try to do other yeah. things um but to kind of move from that space and i think what i what i appreciate about you all and also what i what i as a pastor wish people knew is that um it's okay to outgrow or to have different needs where your values are no longer aligning with a church. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, do, at least here, we don't expect to be all things for all people. That's not really our mission or our calling. And I wish folks knew um, that you don't have to Irish exit the church, <laughs> <laughs> which I, you know, as someone who is um, ethnically most, mostly Irish, if you don't know what that means, that means just leaving without saying a darn thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there are going to be times where some of you listening, like you're you're going to be like, hey, I, I'm i seeking, I need something else. And um, having a conversation with me or Barry or really anyone about that would be so helpful um, to let us know kind of what's going on and also to wish you well and like help folks within this transition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I wish people knew that that was okay expected you know like that's just kind of part of of being the body of christ is we can't 
there are so many different iterations for a reason. There are a lot of different ways you can be a Christian here, even in Kalamazoo County, let alone, you know, with online access. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, that, and, you know, we really bless and wish people well on their way, but also wish they'd just give us a heads up and say, hey, Thanks for my time here. Like I need, I need something different and new. Yeah. So we can kind of offer offer that blessing of transition the same way that we offer a blessing when folks, you know, come on in and take take our you know Chapel Hill 101 class. <laughs> it's okay to grow and yeah to need something else. Yeah, boy, for uh, having talked about uh, pastoral care not necessarily <laughs> being your top thing all the time, you're sure sounding a lot like a pastor who cares, Jess. Yeah, I am a, you know, I am a pastor who cares. I wouldn't say pastoral care is maybe my main hat, um, but I do, I, I can and feel we, we need to have more pastoral care, particularly with transitions and when our leadership changes. Something yeah. we do so poorly in the Methodist church is we like suck people in to administrative committees. And then y'all feel like you're stuck there forever. You know, and I, sometimes people are like, I, uh, you know, I love this place, but this is not where I feel called. And we don't have a good culture of saying like, hey, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're not letting God down. You're not letting anyone down. Like we can find another space for you to maybe go fallow for a little bit and just rejuvenate yourself. You know, mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. don't have to constantly be serving the church in order to be serving God. Yeah. And so I, I wish that is a place I really feel mm-hmm. passionate about offering pastoral sure. care because f- specifically folks that fall on this orthopraxy side, mm-hmm. we love to be practicing our faith and we need to be like doing something. We really need to work probably on the just, on the just being. Sure. So offering space for people to just mm-hmm. take a breath and exist. I do feel passionate about pastoral care in that arena. Yeah. And, and you do a good job. I mean, I can speak, I can speak to that Thank you. That's why personally you know. <laughs> having done, um, you know, helped facilitate the high school Sunday school class last year. And then yeah. we stepped back from that this fall. Yes. And, you know, I was half expecting, you know, since you guys and you and Pastor Barry an email, uh, saying, you know, we think we're going to step back for this time and was half expecting a, uh, you know. Oh, come on, you know, a little bit more arm twisting to try it and keep going. You know, we could really use help a little bit longer while we transition this or something. Yeah. It was just like, no, be well, we get it. Yeah. And I, I really appreciated that. Um, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you, you know, we have a lot of folks where we have to kind of uh, be thoughtful about saying absolutely. And we want you to, to find the ministry spaces that really fit. And you all really gave that a good hearty try. If anyone's <laughs> listening now and they have... Tina, we actually do have high school Sunday school, y'all. And uh, Kat Beza is leading it this year, who has passion around it. Oh, cool. And Tanya's uh, helping for the time being, and we're trying to figure out, um, you know, how to offer space. It's it's an early it's early in the morning for the teens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we actually, we had a huge youth group last night. There was a lot of kids there, and I'm like, oh, you all, you all do thrive at night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we found your waking hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so Drew, um, do you have anything else you'd like us, you know, you, that you wanted to say about your story, or you think folks should know? Any other concluding thoughts? That's oh, kind of a boy. dramatic question. <laughs> uh, no, not not right off the top of my head. Um, that's that's okay. Think think yeah. we covered pretty well. We covered a lot. Yeah, no doubt. My final question, which is kind of a. Um, we're going to diverge from our topic, but you listen to a lot of podcasts. I do. What are you What are you listening that you would recommend or commend to folks right now? What are you finding a lot of enjoyment in Ooh. that you think would be 
other people would enjoy? Well, um, I guess two podcasts that I really enjoy that are in the more um, progressive Christian space are, um, well, or three of them, depending on how deep you want to go. Um, <laughs> the New Evangelicals is actually a podcast that a guy named Tim Whitaker puts on. Yeah. Um, and he just does a really good job. He came, you know, very similar story. It's one of those, you know, I hear him start talking about his story and it's like, oh yeah, yeah, been there, done that and get where you're coming from. You know, I, I think he has surpassed me in his progressive side. But at the same time, um, he regularly brings on um, just, I guess, the all the podcasts I enjoy. They tend to bring on um, Christian authors, speakers, things like that um, to talk on different subjects that stay pretty current and relevant. Um, so I enjoy that. I enjoy um, You Have Permission that Dan Koch puts out. Oh, I have not um, heard of this one. Yeah, that one... Um, Whole whole long backstory. I won't even get into on how I found him, but his his podcast is is good. Um, I enjoy, um, you know, as as the name would suggest, he he takes on subjects that a lot of times Christianity has a pretty set, um, or at least conservative Christianity would tend to have a pretty set um, line of thought on, and says you know you you have permission to consider <laughs> these yeah. which you know sounds really arrogant but at the same time <laughs> he, Some folks need that he does he does a good job though yeah. yeah and and i'd say you know i've fallen into that group where you someone saying you know there are other ways of thinking about this yeah and you can and consider that even among yes. faithful christians you know mm-hmm. um and then i also really enjoy um homebrewed christianity that trip fuller puts out yeah um and all those guys overlap and inter interact quite a bit so you get a lot of interplay back and forth and podcasts overlapping with each other and things but i, I stay and stay up with all of them pretty regularly yeah. and enjoy them yeah homeward christianity is fun and um a, a really a, a decent um consistent progressive christian voice yeah. out in spaces yeah and they do classes sometimes too, yes which is, yeah. and i have taken a few of their classes yeah. i took uh, an Easter one and a Christmas one um, in the last year that are good. They are good. They had one a few years ago with uh, Dr. Robert Espinoza um, yep. on liberation theology. Yep. yep. And that was, that was incredible. It mm-hmm. was, it was only like six weeks and I had, I had taken yep. it in like seminary, but I was like, wow, they're really bringing yeah. uh, the academy right. right to the pews. Right. And that's something I'm really passionate about too. Yep. They, they do a great job. Yeah. The, the Easter and Advent ones that I took were both with John Dominic Crossan. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just a hoot to listen to. He, so. <laughs> yeah, his writing's a hoot. Listening to him is a good time. Yeah. So if you all are looking for more podcasts yeah. to add to your, <laughs> your feed, there are three really great ones you can listen to. Drew, thanks for being here. And, Certainly. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, your time um, to chat with us. And we will catch you all next time. Yeah.